electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, making money in the metaverse. Corporate America clamoring to own their piece of this pie. So who has the real opportunity in this fake world? <laughs> the three names to watch, plus China Tech on a tear. Singles Day smashing records. We are breaking down the big moves. And later, Rivian flooring it. And buckle up, because here come the options. When they start trading and what you need to know. But we start off with the three most important charts in the markets right now, according to our traders. With stock indices trading off record highs, our panel flagged a couple other moves that could give us a real read on the markets. First, there's the dollar, its highest level in more than a year. Small cap ETF, the IWM, recently breaking out of an eight-month rut. And finally, the 10-year yield. So let's get at them one by one. Tim, the dollar, that was your chart. Yeah, and I think if you look at the dollar chart going back year to date, really from January 5th, where it hit kind of that that COVID low, uh, it's up almost 7% in that time. And and yet that followed a period where the dollar lost 12.5% from the peak of the flight to quality of the dollar spike right into COVID uh, to the bottom. And again, the avalanche of Fed liquidity. Um, The reason the dollar to me is the most important chart is ultimately that the dollar is a sign of two things. One, it's often a sign of risk off as we see uh, any type of volatility and some major changes in market sentiment. But also, it's certainly a function of the Fed. And if you take that chart back uh, three to five years, so a five-year chart shows you where we kind of peaked on the dollar uh, around 102 on the Dixie. And then we got into this place where the Fed really had lost credibility. And then you start to go into that 2018 hiking cycle. And we all know what happened in December of 2018, when people feel like the Fed overstepped their bounds. But why would the dollar be rallying in the face of inflation when, in fact, a lot of people would think that would be currency negative? And I I think it's because uh, the dollar is pricing in a Fed that's way behind the curve and is going to get a lot more aggressive than I think we have seen them so far. So I think the dollar could go substantially higher. And I think if you look at the trend again and drew a trend off of those uh, early 2018 levels, the dollar is definitely going to 100, in my view. The timing, and it'll ebb and flow a bit. But I think uh, probably the real test is what happens when it gets to 102. That's not great for certain asset classes. It's certainly not great for energy and commodities. Hasn't been particularly good typically for emerging markets. And remember what percentage of the S&P gets their revenue base uh, from an international customer. Um, Therefore, a stronger dollar makes U.S. goods less competitive in foreign currencies, makes them more expensive. So something to think about. Not good for uh, corporate earnings. Um, But this implies, Brian Kelly, that this is one of the few asset classes out there that's actually pricing in the Fed needing to be much, much more aggressive. Yeah, and currency markets tend to do that, right? Because when you're talking about Fed policy or central bank policy anyway, there's this long lag time. So currency markets tend to price it first, then the fixed income markets, and then equity players start to think, okay, is this really going to change the economic outlook? But to Tim's point on the U.S. dollar, it is somewhat less about the U.S. and more about the rest of the world, and the dollar has become the new VIX. The higher the dollar goes, the more risk there is out there because there's so many dollar-based debt out there. 
And if you live in a foreign country and you don't have dollars, but you have to pay your debts in U.S. dollars, you got to buy them someplace. And as they go higher, that creates your, it's almost as if you're short. And so that's why it becomes kind of a volatility fear index the higher it goes. With this run, though, we still we haven't heard companies uh, so far, at least, really talk about the impact of a stronger dollar and the anticipation of that. And I'm wondering, Guy, if that tells you maybe it's not as big of an impact right now. Hasn't been meaningfully stronger. I mean, I think Tim makes a great point. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. If you listen to Tim and, you know, listen, I guess the move from 89 and a half to 94 and the DXY is interesting, but we've been in this range for quite some time. So I don't think corporate America has been able to use um, that excuse. There have been a bunch of others they've been able to use. They will pull that arrow out of their quiver when when they're ready to. And that's probably going to be on that move to 100 that Tim talked about. What I find fascinating, by the way, and notice I'm not talking about the Taylor Swift song in relation to the U.S. dollar, but what I find really interesting is, you know, as dollars had this little move to the upside, it's coincided with a pretty significant move in gold as well, which you know, something's got to give here. And, you know, I think the dollar can go up. But you know what? Maybe this new paradigm, this metaverse, gold goes higher as well. <laughs> you're just you're just using you're you're worse than like corporate America guy just throwing out metaverse just for the sake of using metaverse Buzz when words. you're not you don't really mean the metaverse at all. Dan, what do you think of this dollar chart? I know this wasn't your chart. It wasn't the most important chart to you, at least. But what do you think about the dollar? Um, listen, it's breaking out. And, and, and if you look at a multi-year chart, you see what, what we all see here. And, and if it wasn't like the Dixie and it wasn't attached to rates and it wasn't attached to um, a whole host of other things, you would say, I want to buy that, right? Um, where I'm a bit confused, though, is with what's going on with rates. You know, I've said this on the show in, in numerous times. You know, look at that move that we have back in 2014 in the Dixie. What did that correspond with? That corresponded with the Fed tapering bond purchases, right? And then indicating that they were going to start to raise rates when they were done with that. We had that massive move in the Dixie. Well, here's the thing, right? Rates aren't going anywhere right now. And so I think we're in a really different spot. And what's different this time is that the Fed balance sheet is more than 2x of where it was back then. So I just don't think the dollar is probably going to go too much higher right here because if rates aren't going higher, I just don't see the dollar going much higher. And that was your chart, Dan. Your chart is the 10-year yield because that's what you – I mean – the 10-year yield being where it is, I mean, you think that is a better determinant um, of the direction of the dollar, of the direction of Fed policy also? Yeah, well, listen, you know, David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research, tweeted out this morning. So he said, it's, uh, if inflation is back to where it was in October 1990 and July of 2008, guess what? The economy was recession-bound both times. The Fed's next move was not exactly to raise rates and Treasury bond yields plunge in the coming 12 months. I think it's really interesting. The point that David makes here is that everybody's on one side. Everyone thinks rates are going higher because the Fed's saying they're going to taper and they're pushing forward the rate hikes. But why aren't rates moving? And I know there's a lot of people much smarter than me about all this stuff. They got five different reasons why rates aren't going hard. The only thing that I know is the technicals really stink in this thing right here. I think we have a chart, a multi-year chart here. It might break. It might break um, one way or the other, but they should be moving higher right now. And if you look at the long term, back all the way to Rosie's 1990 period, you see upper left and then you see bottom right. And because of sovereign balance sheets where they are, I just don't think rates are going higher. And maybe rates also point to the fact that growth expectations are as good as it gets right now for 2022 clearly pull forward of some of the misgrowth in Q3 into Q4, and who the heck knows what happens next year. I mean, Tim, that's sort of 
I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, your, your two charts can, can actually coexist because you're saying that people are piling into the dollar as a safe haven, maybe because they're scared about what the future brings, which is what Dan's point basically don't is. Put, don't put words in my mouth, Mel. Um, and, you know, I'm, no, I'm kidding. I, I, I think that uh, the point's very valid, that, that ultimately rates are in a place where, you know, if the assumption is that the Fed's going to step in here much more aggressively, um, there are two schools of thought. And that one is that rates could move higher, um, that the trend and the technicals on the 10-year look like you could actually start to see uh, us, us moving substantially higher from here. But I, I think that we still have, if anything, I know we have inflation everywhere, but I still think we have a deflationary cycle in terms of credit bubbles that have burst and, and really where we are with money. So long way of saying the, the, the Fed gets in and gets more aggressive than, than they can. And at some point, rates are going to come back down again. The, the biggest fear is that we're below 1% on the 10-year. By the way, give me a 3% 10-year and I'll lock that in all day long because I don't think you're going to see a 3% 10-year in, in the foreseeable future. I think there's a lot of investors that would love to own that long-term yield. Um, and again, I, I think we're at a case where the minute you think that the Fed is getting aggressively more involved in the market, and I argued that that was part of my dollar chart, at some point, I think the tenure is going to pull back because the assumption is they're going to kill the economy. Um, BK, you've got sort of a twist on the tenure yield chart. Yeah, so I, I'm looking at the copper to gold ratio, and this has been a really good predictor of what is going to go on with rates. And so, you know, the idea here is that both copper and gold are sensitive to the economy and to inflation. And so if you have copper rising faster than gold, that suggests the economy is getting better, uh, getting better, but you're also going to get some higher rates. So what we've seen recently, as Guy pointed out presciently there, that we have gold breaking out from a low base, albeit, but still breaking out, and gold is responding to inflationary pressures. If now you get any type of movement up in copper, that tends to be the indicator for the real economy, not the monetary economy that gold's talking about. And so when you get that breakout, or if you get copper higher, that would indicate that yields go higher. Now, the problem with yields going higher, and this is what Tim and everybody's been talking about, is once you get above 1.75%, that is where higher rates start to drag on economic growth. So we've seen rates get up right up to 1.75% and haven't backed off. And I would argue that if we saw 3% on the 10-year bond in this environment, that would mean that there is something very wrong on the inflation front. Hmm. Guy, your chart is the IWM. Yes, it is. And just to sort of dovetail uh, Brian Kelly, because that's what we do here. I mean, just take a look at what FCX and Alcoa did today, just to sort of uh, give some clarity and, and some visuals to everything he was just discussing. Very interesting. And yes, Melissa, I'm glad you mentioned that. My chart is the IWM. We played this game a while back, and that was my chart as well. So I would have found it disingenuous, which is a tremendous haiku word, five syllables, to do something else. And after a nine-month hiatus, which you mentioned at the top of the show, where we traded between sort of 215 and 235 in the IWM, we finally broke out at the beginning of this month. And you know, regardless what I think about the broader market, I happen to believe that if the IWM is going higher, which it certainly appears to be, um, it's going to be very hard for the broader market to sell off. So that was my most important chart way back. It continues to be. So tell me, Guy, I mean, if, if you are a believer that there's going to be a breakout and small caps generally do well in an economy that's doing well, I mean, what does that tell you about? So that, that backs up the dollar move? That does not back up the 10-year yield? 
I believe it. Listen, I absolutely believe it backs up Tim's dollar move without mm -hmm. question. And if you listen to Stephanie Link, who's been talking about this for a while now on the halftime report and on the closing bell, and Liz Young from SoFi has been bringing it up, you know, this, the move in the IWM has sort of mirrored inflationary periods since the 1930s. And, you know, that suggests the economy is doing better, which suggests the dollar should do better. The missing link here, and I think Dan makes a great point, rates should be higher. I can't tell you why 10-year yields are not 2%. They absolutely should be, given the backdrop, but they're not. I happen to think we're getting there by the end of the year. BK, do you think that's because of positioning? That's always, that always seems to be the reason. Positioning. Positioning is causing I mean, uh, rates to be yeah, suppressed. Uh, so, yes, in some ways, but I, you know, we did have, we had, everybody was, was betting that rates are going to go higher, the so-called steepener trade. And macro guys like to use really big words like that. And all it really means is they're betting that rates are going to go higher. And when they went lower after the Fed, then everybody had to unwind those positions. But that's a very short-term thing. If you look at the yield curve, it's flattening out. So the message from the yield curve outside of positioning is that we're right in the middle of a policy mistake by central banks. They should have raised rates a long time ago. They didn't. Now they're going to raise rates and they're going to crush the economy. That, to me, is what the bond market is telling us. <laughs> All right, time to settle the score. Let's bring in Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC. Lori, you've been listening to all of us discuss these charts. Which chart do you think is the most important in the market right now? And you can go off the board and pick your own chart that we haven't mentioned. All right. Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take option A and, and option B. I'm going to agree with Guy. I like the IWM chart. Um, I think this breakout that we've seen in small cap is unbelievably exciting. All year, small caps have had a lid uh, basically placed on top, even though we've been in the middle of this unbelievably hot economy and inflationary backdrop in which they should have been doing much, much better. And I'll tell you, Melissa, all of our inbound call volume over the last couple weeks has been on small cap and whether or not this breakout can continue, which tells me that equity investors are looking for untapped opportunities in this market. Everyone's nervous about the Fed. Everyone's nervous about inflation and supply chains. But there is still bullishness. There is still cash to put to work. Investors want to know where those undervalued opportunities are. Small caps look dirt cheap relative to large caps. They historically and very consistently outperform when inflation expectations are rising. We're seeing that again. And everything we've heard from companies in this earnings season has been that underlying appetite, even if demand has seen some technical hiccups, that underlying appetite is strong. So there's really no growth scare on the horizon. And small caps are the way to express the desire to keep investing in equities going and forward. So I think that's clearly the most important thing we're seeing right now on that board. Lori, so first of all, bravo, Guy, apparently the most important chart. Good for you, Guy. Not surprised. Um, so, so is that affirmation by small caps, does that change? You've been on our show recently and you've been right uh, about looking at a lot of the cyclicality in the market. I know you've been bullish on banks. I know you've been bullish on some of the industrials. Does, does this breakout by small caps change any of that? Does it, does, do you now emphasize it? Do you lean on the gas? Um, tell me what Guy's chart means for your call. So I think that I, I actually agree with some of the comments you guys have all made about 10-year uh, yields and just the confusion that we've seen in the market and why rates aren't breaking out more. And I think what's really impressive about small caps is that they are managing to have this breakout. Small caps are managing to look at the bigger picture on the stronger economic and inflationary data and move forward. Um, so I actually you know, sort of look at different positioning trades in the market. We can play growth versus value. We can play cyclical versus secular. Um, we can play small versus large. I actually have 
more conviction in the small versus large trade right now than value versus growth, because I do think value ends up being a lot about the financials, and financials do require rates to move up. We need that 10-year yield to move higher. And even though I think the, you know, the 10-year yield is probably not moving up, not for particularly good reasons, technically for that value trade to get going, you need the financials to get going, and you just need that directional move in rates to cooperate, and it's not. And I think investors are being shrewd here, and they're kind of pushing that off to the side, and they're saying, we know the economy is hot, we know inflationary pressures are building again, so we'll play it in small caps, keep an eye on what's going on in yields and not overly react to that. Um, but I do think it's part of a mosaic, but I think you can have higher conviction in the small caps right now because they are behaving a bit more rationally. Hey, it's BK. So I'm curious on the small cap call and how it, in, it, how it relates to inflation in the past. Um, but what if we have an inflation situation here where demand's fine, but you just can't get the product? Doesn't that cap the revenue potential for small caps because they can't get the product? So therefore, no matter how much they want to sell, it doesn't matter? I think it does for certain companies, and I think that we saw that, you know, even if we looked at big cap earnings in that, this last reporting season. But I think the market is being very, very shrewd here, and those who can execute are being rewarded. Those who are enduring some of those hiccups, um, who haven't been able to manage their inventories and supply chains as well, they're getting punished, but the broader market is not getting dragged down. And look, I'll tell you with small caps, you know, I think when you talk to an individual portfolio manager in small cap, they do get caught up in earnings reports. They do get caught up in which company has been executing. It impacts their stock selection. It impacts their performance. But when you think about the investors who trade in small caps as an asset class, you know, the bigger asset allocation funds, for example, hedge funds who are making bets on the IWM, you never really hear them talking about those kinds of company-specific issues. They're making big macro trades. They're making big macro bets. And so they're going to be focusing on things like, do I want to be involved in U.S. versus non-U.S.? Um, they're going to be making cyclical trades. Um, so I hear you, but I think that these bigger picture investors, when they're looking at small caps and moving in and out, they're just not getting that granular, to be honest. Lori, always good to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Lori Calvacina, RBC. If one is to believe what the small cap chart seems to be telegraphing, should you be concerned that the Fed is, in fact, going to play catch up and play catch up very hard, Dan? Uh, you know, listen, I don't think we should be concerned with anything with the Fed. I think the market has sniffed out the right stuff this year here. Um, you know, and I do think I agree with Guy. I think that's a great looking chart. I'd much rather buy that than the piling in the straight parabolic move that we've seen in large caps, especially if you think growth is not going to collapse at some point after we have some form of like, you know, pick back up or whatever you want to call in Q1 and Q1. So I think that is a much more sustainable trade, defensible trade than some of the high valuations we're starting to see in large caps. And so I'm not particularly worried that the Fed is going to change their tune so immediately and get a whole heck of a lot more hawkish. Um, if anything, it's going to be supportive of equities for a while. All right, coming up, smashing records. Chinese tech giant JD.com soaring after reporting a blockbuster singles day. The big numbers and how our traders are playing the China tech turnaround. Plus, looking for the next big opportunity in the metaverse. Get in line. Corporate America seeing real money in this fake world. So who's best, best position to come out on top? We've got some names when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now... It's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. 
crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares at JD.com topping the tape today, surging more than 8%. The company posting a record $54 billion in sales for Singles Day, China's annual blowout shopping event. The broader China tech sector also getting a boost. Shares of Alibaba up more than 2% at the close. And the China Internet ETF KWeb also ripping higher today. Um, Tim, good news for now. <laughs> what do you think of the sector? Well, yeah, yeah, very good news. And even the FXI was was up. So some of the Hong Kong listed China stuff, including banks and some kind of monolithic industrials. But but look, JD.com up 28.6% roughly uh, year over year, uh, even though this is still a decline of about four or so percentage points off of their peak growth levels. So the rate of growth from 2020. Um, and then Alibaba was kind of the big loser, even though, again, they were up 8.4 year over year, but they're down about 18 percentage points from the growth levels that we saw in 2020. And what's going on uh, between at least Alibaba and the Chinese government in the last year and a half? Um, you get some sense that really the, the, the pushback against the monopolistic practices or not, but that's certainly part of the claim. Uh, is 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 actually benefiting JD.com. And if you look at the performance of the stocks, JD.com has been a great investment. Alibaba um, in the last month and a half is maybe put in a bottom, is back above the 50, um, but that was after a 50% decline. So the question really for investors is, what's the Chinese government's take on some of the internet stocks? Some of the internet stocks are rallying because, again, they're not seen as uh, in the crosshairs of regulatory policy, cyber, uh, control of the internet, et cetera. So, um, again, what's the trade here? I do think that Chinese internet names are interesting. Um, I love Tencent, but I still don't think it's a green light. Uh, and I think with Alibaba, we've seen this move before. You're still fighting to get through that downtrend up above 185. You start to make a claim that you are. Well, apparently, I mean, I think that's an interesting point in terms of, of being more low key um, because of the fear of regulatory scrutiny on the part of Alibaba. Supposedly this year, the celebration was scaled down quite a bit. Remember, there was a year when Katy Perry was the headliner. This year, the biggest star was Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch. No offense to Benedict Cumberbatch, but he's no <laughs> Katy Perry guy. And I, I don't know, I mean, is Benedict a fan of the show? He probably is. So sorry, Benedict. But um, they, they really scaled back. Things were different this year. Supply chain concerns were also a factor. Well, I happen to know Katy Perry is a huge fan of Fast Money. She's watching right now. We should probably uh, give her a shout out, although we've done that already. You know, that song Wrecking Ball by her is just tremendous. But Tim makes a great point in terms of um, Alibaba. We've said it for a while. 
You go back to the October high of 2020, was trading 317. You've made a series of lower lows and lower highs, and he's spot on. You know, you need to get a close above sort of 180, 182 for this to have a meaningful move to the upside. And oh, by the way, which is my want to say, uh, this situation between China and Taiwan has not been resolved by any stretch, and I happen to think it's going to get worse. So I think you buy at your own risk right now in some of these names. BK, how are you feeling about Chinese tech? Uh, I mean, if you have to buy a stock that is a Chinese stock, then probably something like a JD is the way to go. I still think you have the risk that the Chinese government decides to crack down on particular sectors. But I am encouraged. We were talking about what the Chinese government's going to do. There are a couple things that came out this week that were a bit encouraging. Number one, the Chinese government said they may actually open up to outside flows again, money coming in. That tells me China blinked. They need money right now. Secondarily, they're trying to get, they're loosening some of the re- regulations and restrictions on the real estate bond market, which means we might get some kind of a credit impulse from them. So in terms of the bad news of China, it is likely priced in. The JD numbers tell us that, hey, maybe the Chinese consumer isn't dead, but I would much rather buy the things that China wants to buy rather than a Chinese equity because it takes, if I buy an equity or if I buy stuff that China wants to buy, that takes out the government interference risk. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Virtual reality is becoming a reality. So where are the best opportunities in the metaverse? The traders give their takes next. Plus, Semi's playing catch-up. And one of our traders says there's one chip that's about to rip. The details are coming up. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. My vision is to use Disney Plus as the platform for the metaverse. I think it really blends our physical beings with our digital beings and creates a three-dimensional canvas, if you will, for our creative storytellers to paint so that we can create experiences that otherwise have been defined as it's a park experience or it's a movie experience or it's a book experience. I think those all come together without boundaries, without borders, without constraints, and our creatives are just biting at the bit to get into the Disney metaverse. That was Disney CEO Bob Chapek last night on Fast Money talking about his company's big ambitions in the metaverse and with so many consumer-facing companies trying to figure out how to play this brand-new environment. We want to know who has a real opportunity in this fake world and what the heck is the metaverse anyway? 
Let's bring in Jeffrey's equity analyst, Andrew Erkwitz, to break it all down for us. Andrew, great to have you with us. Um, a lot of people might think that they know what the metaverse is, that it's uh, something like a decentraland, and, and that's, that's what these companies are talking about. You actually say that the metaverse isn't something that we have right now. What, what is it going to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's I think there's a long term definition, which everybody likes to use Ready Player One, right, which is a a mirrored version of the physical world in a virtual world somewhere where you can be whatever you want to be, go wherever you want to be, uh, go wherever you want to go. Um, that's probably decades away, um, but that's OK. Um, in the meantime, uh, the technology that's going to take to build that uh, opens up all sorts of new uh, and exciting opportunities. Um, and so while we don't think the the utopian version or dystopian version of metaverse is is coming. Uh, there is still ample opportunity for public and private companies alike to take advantage of the technology needed to build it. We know that a lot of companies are figuring out some sort of metaverse strategy at this point, like we heard Disney CEO Bob Chapek talking mm-hmm. about, Andrew. But at this point, do we know that there is the traffic um, in the metaverse to be worthwhile for these companies at this point? Or how do you, how do you think about oh, yeah. the projections of that? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, we already have metaverse-like things. Um, you have virtual concerts in Fortnite. You have virtual concerts in Roblox. Uh, Vans, the skateboard and shoe company, built their own experience in Roblox uh, last month. 40 million, uh, 40 million people visited it. Um, and so there are things happening um, that, uh, you know, that early adopters are already kind of playing in a, a world that is metaverse-like for sure. No doubt many early adopters. I guess my question was how close are we for this entire thing to really come to fruition? I mean, is this six months away, which I don't think it is, or is it 10 years away, which probably Sorry, not. Guy, we are having an issue with your audio there, so I'll, I'll pick up the question while we try and straighten that out, and, and we'll also ask the other traders to join in. Um, but, Andrew, in terms of the low-hanging fruit for investors, investors might think, oh, this is like Web 3.0. I want to get mm-hmm. in on this. We're at the early stages. So what companies are actually benefiting from this idea of metaverse as opposed to just being a buzzword that they throw out because they think that investors want to hear it? Yeah, no, I'm old enough to remember when everybody put dot com on their name. Right. (laughs) Um, And it does feel a little bit like that. Uh, But there but again, there are companies really benefiting. Uh, You take a company like Roblox. Uh, There are brands tripping over themselves to build experiences in Roblox. That's going to drive traffic. That's going to drive engagement. That will ultimately drive monetization uh, for a company like Roblox. Uh, For video game companies like EA, Take-Two, Activision, they can slowly introduce it. These companies are typically fast followers on the latest trends. Uh, And so as they start to introduce some elements um, around collectibles, NFTs, uh, and have metaverse-like experiences, that will do the same thing, drive engagement. The bigger companies... Um, I would question kind of the near term. Uh, and I believe, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said the same, where it's going to take years to to get to his vision of what it is. Uh, but there are companies today that can monetize from it, for sure. Hey, it's BK. So I'm curious um, on the total addressable market or the market size here. I mean, one way to think about the metaverse, of course, is as another trading block like the EU or China or the U.S. or another GDP. Two, two questions. Do you have a sense of how big of an opportunity is it? Is it 20 trillion? Is it 10 trillion? And then what is the currency of the metaverse going to be? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't have a I don't have a market size. I mean, every time my team thinks about it, we just get bigger and bigger numbers. 
Um, and if we use the baseball analogy, we're still in batting practice, let alone even starting the game here. Um, so, it, it, but you know, so that's kind of how we think about it. But I will tell you, um, metaverse is not necessarily a new concept for gamers, right? They spend 70, 70, 75 billion dollars a year on virtual on virtual goods. Now on the currency, again, this is kind of open for debate because the Web 3.0 folks out there think this is going to be completely decentralized uh, and ultimately the currency will be some sort of cryptocurrency. Very likely, at least in the, the investment time horizons that we have, um, and I think most of your viewers have, it will probably be walled gardens, um, in some cases using real dollars, in other cases using a virtual non-backed currency like in video games, or it could be a cryptocurrency. I think a lot of the stuff is still uh, being sorted out. And in fact, some of the best investments are probably actually on the private space uh, that's trying to build some of these experiences uh, in the metaverse. Andrew, this is fascinating stuff. I hope you'll come back um, on the show and, and talk about this more. Andrew Urquitz from Jeffries. Thank you so much. So, Guy Dami, what do you make of the metaverse? We've, we've straightened out the audio issue well, first, here. Is my audio okay? No, we didn't. Our bad. Our bad. <laughs> Dan Nathan, where do you think the, the opportunity is right now? Yeah, I think near term it is um, in these walled gardens. If you think about Zuckerberg told us he's going to spend $10 billion, right, to create some sort of uh, universe, at least that his existing two and a half billion users can, can participate and use their hardware to do it and possibly use, to BK's question, their currency if they ever get their DM thing um, going here. So, you know, obviously, I think that's how it starts. I don't think that's how it finishes. I think that um, there is this vision that the walled gardens garden version will be a dystopian sort of version, whereas the Web 3 vision of it is going to be very decentralized. Yeah. BK, where do you stand on, on the metaverse at this point? Well, I think the metaverse is going to be going to be absolutely huge. I think it's going to be as, as big a trading block as any of the countries that we're talking about now, the EU or the U.S. or anything like that, because it encompasses the whole globe. But that's 20 years down the line. In the, in, the, in the meantime, I do think, you know, you can buy stuff like NVIDIA and those type of things, kind of the picks and shovels of it. But I do also think the cryptocurrency world, when you look at some of those, you look at like an Axie Infinity, even just buying Ethereum, I think will get you some exposure to the growth of the metaverse. All right. Coming up, is this the ultimate catch up trade in tech? One of our traders says this chip stock is ready to break out. We'll bring you the name. Plus, Rivian charging higher in its first two days of trade. Buckle up because here come the options, what you can expect when they start trading. All that and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The SAMI is posting some gains today with the SMH ETF climbing almost 2%. Seagate Technology, a big standout, taking a fresh all-time high. Dan says there is one name in this space that could be due for a catch-up. So, Dan, which one is it? Yeah, some old school players will know what I'm going to talk about. I mean, look at that move in Seagate. All time highs, like you just said, Mel. Um, you know, look, you look at Western Digital here. This stock is down about 25% um, from its recent 52 uh, week highs here. It trades half the multiple of Seagate, and probably for decent reason here. The company had just reported and guided. Pretty disappointing. The stock got nailed, but here it is. It caught a little bit of a bid. It's kind of breaking that downtrend that's been in place um, since the spring here. I think if you're looking to broaden out the semi trade, this is obviously 
obviously more focused on storage. This is a very cheap name. This and obviously Micron, you know, there's only so much you can pile into the GPU trade at this point. The NVIDIA and the AMD have gone parabolic. Maybe it makes sense now to look broader across the space. Guy, what do you think of Western Dig as a catch-up? All right, does my mic work now? Everybody says you shut my mic down because I said Katy Perry saying, I know it's not Katy Perry, number one. Number two, if you go back to October 29th, Western Digital traded down to 49.5 on 18.5 million shares, about four times normal volume. That was your capitulatory bottom, and that downtrend that Dan just talked about is about to be broken out to the upside. So I like what Dan is throwing here, although Dan knows you don't buy names like WDC and S and Seagate on valuation alone. Yeah. Um, Tim? Well, you have a case where maybe this semiconductor chart, this SMH, could have been in our A block where we're talking about the most important charts for the market because it, it, it too, has been parabolic. And, yes, AMD, NVIDIA, and a, a couple others have a lot to do with that. Um, you know, back to whether you go back to more of the commoditized chips and, and Western Dig, it, look, they, they had an excellent September quarter that they reported, and then they gave the same outlook that everybody else did that talked about supply chain disruption, et cetera. Ultimately, we are working through that. We're also starting to get that type of commentary. So really, this is a question about what the multiple is at the bottom end of the, uh, the exotic range here. And I think, as these guys have pointed out, this is a case where I think there's relative value to be had in flash and hard drive. And I think Western Dig looks good. All right. Coming up, Rivian speeding onto the scene in a powerhouse debut. Up next, we'll lay out the timeline and when you can start plugging into Rivian options. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money coming your way right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Rivian with a huge follow-through today after yesterday's 29% debut day rally. The EV maker now has a larger market cap than both Ford and GM. BK, what'd you make of this? Is this, is Rivian a stock you put in your top drawer? No, 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 not at this valuation. I mean, you're pricing in an awful lot of, of truck sales in this thing. Um, you know, have at it, go for it, as Dan would say. It could go higher. This is a very frothy market. Uh, but for me, I'm not going to be a buyer of Rivian here. I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe I'm missing something. Well, you might not want to buy the stock, but maybe you want to trade the option. So when do the options start trading? Who better to ask than Mike Coe, who's got the action on that? Mike. Yeah, so when you have a new uh, listing and you're wondering when the options are going to first start trading, the options exchanges will list once the underlying issuer meets a couple requirements. Now, Rivian, it has to be said, uh, given the fact that its market cap is over $100 billion, that the share price is well over $100, that it traded well over 80 million shares today, actually meets all of these requirements pretty easily. One of the requirements, though, that's a little bit harder to detect is actually the number of shareholders of record. There must be a minimum of 2,000 shareholders of record. Now, I think we could all reasonably guess that the number is probably substantially higher than that. But the way that is handled is exchanges will typically go and check with the brokers to figure out how many registered, uh, how many uh, shareholders of record there actually are. So basically what you're looking at is a minimum of about four days between the IPO date and the first date when you can anticipate that options will be listed. Now, the exchanges aren't going to confirm that until they're also going to get a notification from the OCC on this. But that would suggest that options are likely to begin trading next Tuesday. That's the most likely date uh, the way I see it. And I also checked with a couple of the exchanges, both the SIBO and the NASDAQ. And I wanted to just throw a quick shout out there because the person I reached out to at NASDAQ, I called him on his mobile phone 
And he was getting married today, and still he picked up the call to try to give us some information. That guy is Sean Feeney, and he's getting uh, married today to Faye Rumley. Congratulations to them, but, and also to the NASDAQ, where I believe you're currently sitting. They have a dedicated bunch of employees over there, it must be said. Well, congratulations to Sean and Faye. I hope Faye didn't listen to that phone call. I hope it also didn't happen during the ceremony. Um, given the, the volume that we've seen in, in Tesla options this year, I'm, I would venture a guess that Rivian options would be highly sought after, Dan, in terms of people wanting to trade them. Yeah, so Mike and I discussed this with Mel, with you for years and years, with all these IPOs that came due and as they came out. And one of the things that we used to talk about is liquidity is going to be difficult, right? And the spreads are going to be wide and the premiums are going to be high until the underlying gets some more, I guess, you know, room to run under its belt a little bit. Um, and so until market makers get a sense for it. So I do think they're going to be popular. I think they're going to be difficult to trade, wide bid ask, and they're going to be expensive. So you're going to have to have some massive short-term moves to earn it out if you're playing directionally. Yeah. Tim, does this uh, second day move make you feel any, I don't know, more inclined to be interested in Rivian stock? It certainly made Elon Musk inclined to tweet about Rivian and say that they're not, you know, they're not even close to profitability and that Tesla is the, the only company in the last hundred years in America that's had this kind of level of production and profitability. But anyway, um, I think you have a case here where the valuation makes zero sense. It's very impressive, both the reviews that the, 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 the trucks are getting, uh, obviously the deep-pocketed but very strategic investors, and the fact that this is a, a, a car that, to me, a truck that will be part of fleet and mobility and transportation as a service, and may be very different than some of the other competitors. What it has done is it's finally lit a fire under GM, and it, it has lit a fire under Ford. It's been interesting, as Rivian's valuation has gone up, Ford's has gone down. You wonder, um, have people, did they over impute that value from their stake in Rivian uh, too fast onto Ford? Ford had a massive move. Um, it's been interesting. It's actually been down the last couple of days. Meanwhile, GM's been on fire and looks to be breaking out. All right. Uh, Mike Coe, thank you. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, we're honoring our heroes on this Veterans Day. Back right after this. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Lockheed Martin. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour in Mad Money. And do not forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox at the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now at CNBC.com backslash investing club or use a QR code on the side of your screen. Well, every Veterans Day here on Fast Money, we pause to celebrate and thank our heroes for their courage, sacrifice, and service to our country. And all of you loyal Fast Money fans will recognize our next guest. Jim Regan is the chairman and founder of the Army Ranger Lead the Way Fund. His son, Jimmy, was an Army Ranger who was killed in action while serving in Iraq. Army Ranger Lead the Way Fund was set up in honor of Jimmy and to support disabled Army Rangers and their families. Jim, thank you for all the good work that you do. Welcome back to Fast. It's great to see you. Um, this year was a little different. We usually see you when there is an event in New York City. You couldn't do it, but you had one on September 19th. How, how did it turn out? It turned out great, Melissa. And thank you very much, Team Fast Money. You know, Dan, Tim, Guy, Brian, yourself, awesome. It's been outstanding to be back. You know, it's been a lot of challenges this 19 months or so, and uh, it's really great to be back with you all. You hey, Jim, I wish I 
Oh, I'm Go sorry, ahead, Mel. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry, I wish I, I, I wish we could be there with you, and and uh, you know it's always means so much to us that you come on and, and we get to celebrate uh, your son's sacrifice, Jimmy. He was a truly great man. What were some of the new initiatives um, over the pandemic? I'm sure you were very busy helping the families <laughs> of Rangers who pass or who need uh, the assistance of the organization. Yes, sir. It's uh, during these COVID restrictions, it affected several of our Lead the Way Fund events, leaving gaps in our fundraising. But, you know, we came through. The team did an outstanding job. We presented a beautiful home to Travis and Kelly Dunn in February. Uh, that was a little couple of months behind schedule, but it was spectacular. It's just north of Tampa. You know, the to make sure that our families are uh, dealt with COVID very well and uh, the health and wellness issues that we have, our programs, you know, the global war on terrorism is still on. You know, we are still there. And our men, our Rangers, our mission, they're never, never complete. They're gearing up for the next training cycle, you know, to defend the United States and the global war on terrorism. You know, we're out of Afghanistan. You know, we're out of Iraq now. But they're all different parts of the world here right now. So, you know, we want to honor and remember Jim and all the men and women that served our wonderful country, you know, over the last number of years. And it's just... Uh, after 20 years, folks, you know, this mission cost our Rangers and their families more than you can imagine. These unseen wounds of war have left lasting impacts and will forever be etched in their lives. So without the support of you and your, your viewers and our donors, you know, the team did an outstanding job. We could not provide the resources to our Rangers and their families without your help. So really, from the bottom of my heart, I really want to thank you very much for having me back on. And, you know, we had a wonderful time September 19th. We honored and remembered a number of wonderful people, especially our first responders, Jimmy. And we had it. We brought it back to Manhasset, Long Island. We had over 500 people do a wonderful run past, you know, Jimmy's Field, which was Muncie Park Field. And uh, it was a great, great tribute to Jim and all the people that we have lost. Jim, it's always a highlight of the year to see you. We appreciate Thank your you good very work, much, your service. Melissa to the veterans and thank you for your sacrifice to this country. Still doing a great job here. So thank you very much for all your, your viewers. Please look into leadthewayfund.org. Love to have their support because we're still needed. Thank you. Jim Regan, thanks so much. Up next, thank you very Final much. Trades. Time for the Final Trade, Tim. Tim? Okay, BK. <laughs> uh, well, thank you to all the veterans for their service, especially my Uncle Tom, who served in Vietnam by MP, MP Materials. Dan? Yeah, big fan of Lead the Way. Also a big fan of my dad, who's also a veteran, too. So happy Veterans Day. And Western Digital breaking out. Do we have Tim? Oh, Tim. All right, now, we, this show has just been, it's like gremlins tonight, guy. Gremlins. Anyway, what's your final trade? No doubt. Loved, I love that movie, by the way. And again, Lead the Way Fund. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for all who served. Uh, Netflix breaking out, Mel. All right. Thanks so much for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.